Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about, uh, as we kind of dove into this paradox series, and, and the, the paradox, the, the idea there is just to get at the, the nature of faith. And when we really begin to unpack faith biblically, it, it has this incredible paradoxical element to it. There, there's these weird tensions that exist within faith and the spiritual life this way. And so when we began the series, we looked at uh, Joshua, and we looked at Joshua and kind of the movement into the promised land as providing, in some sense, an archetype of, of the story of faith. That just like Moses leading people out of Egypt or the people wandering in the desert, also walking into the promised land sets up these kind of symbolic markers of what the spiritual life looks like for us as we go to claim the promises God has for us or as we pursue success or as we move forward in our calling, this whole idea of God leads across the Jordan River, that we're on God's team, it's not whether or not God's on our team, and that ultimately when it's kind of his calling, it's going to be in his strength, the walls of Jericho falling, etc. And so we kind of used Joshua as this kind of archetype story to look at ourselves through that lens. And this morning what I want to do is do the same thing with Abraham. Abraham, in, in many ways, arguably is, is the or one of the greatest archetype stories in Scripture. Um, a lot of people will debate the, the book of Genesis with regard to origins, origins of the world. Um, was it really literally six days of creation or was it a long period of creation? Or what can we even know about creation from the first few chapters of Genesis? And we spent a whole lot of time in the book of Genesis kind of trying to unpack some of those things. And what gets missed in that whole debate is that the book of Genesis primarily is not about creation. The book of Genesis primarily, it's, the, the book of Genesis is 50 plus chapters, the, it's primarily about um, Ab, God calling Abraham out and creating a people for himself that he's going to then work with. So it's the formation of the people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, the nation of Israel. It's the formation of God's people that is the subject of, the primary subject of the book of Genesis. And it really gets its start with Abraham, kind of as the first person God is calling out and then making a, a promise to that he's going to form a nation around. And so I want to give you kind of three markers in Abraham's life and then we're going to look more specifically at the third one. But the first one is in chapter 12 of Genesis where God grabs Abram at that time and basically says, go. And this is in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, you're going to leave this place. You're going to leave your family. You're going to leave your father's land. And you're going to go to a place I'm going to call you to and a place I'm going to give you. And so he's basically... The first kind of movement here we see with God dealing with Abraham is this command to go, to be set apart from, to, um, to leave, and to follow. It's kind of the first command here. And, and again, these are going to be very symbolic, I think, in our, our Christian life as well. The second one here is believe. And this is in Genesis chapter 15. And the belief here is simply this. God comes to Abraham and he says, listen, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham is, is in, um, he was called to leave at age 75. He's older now. 
I mean, he's an old man. His wife, Sarah, is, is uh, an old woman at this time. And God comes and says, I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, I'm going to make your descendants as countless as the stars. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to form a people for myself. This is kind of my promise of how I'm going to set you up, how I'm going to honor you, how I'm going to use you, and what I'm going to do through you. And what happens is, the very next line says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're going to see that picked up in a half dozen other places in the Bible as kind of the, the, uh, the central story defining what it means to have faith and then, in some sense, have righteousness come about through that faith. All the way to the book of Romans where Paul says, in this same vein, we, we find our salvation. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we believe the promise that we have in Jesus and that it is credited to us, therefore, as righteousness based on our belief, not on our works. And you see something interesting happen with this. Abraham, after he believes God, says, is there a sign or how will I know this is going to happen? Or can you, can you give me something to, to hang my hat on? Can you give me something to, to hold on to? And isn't that kind of what we always ask of God? Like, God, I, okay, I'm getting this sense that you're telling me to hold on or that you're going to take care of me or that you've got something up your sleeve I don't know about, but could you maybe just, like, give me something here? Like, when I was a single guy, I used to, um, I used to always have this thought that I didn't care if I was single till I was 30, 40, or whatever, if God would just tell me. You know what I mean? Like I just, it was the unknowing that killed me, you know? And so it's like, just tell me your plan, give me a date, and then I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll travel the world and I'll come back a couple weeks before then, you know? Like just, uh, but I don't want to have to invest a lot of time in singles groups if, if it's not the right time yet. Because we all know, uh, never mind. Um, and, uh, and so that's what Abraham says, like, God, give me a sign here. And what God does is he sets up this picture of what a covenant is that, again, begins to be the pattern for God's covenants with his people um, throughout Scripture. Actually, let's turn to this and just read it quickly. Because if you've never read this passage, you need to have this in the back of your mind. Genesis chapter 15. This is the picture of the covenant. And it's going to sound strange if, if you've never studied covenants, especially in the ancient Near East and, and the whole imagery here. Um, but so this is what happens. Um, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in uh, verse 4. He says, as, as many as the, the stars in the heavens. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness. And then he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, verse 10, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So 
the, the whole idea of birds of prey coming down on the carcasses, if you haven't already got the idea of cutting in half being a bloody picture, picture the vultures coming around. So you've got animals that Abram, Abraham is cutting in half and aligning the halves on two sides of a path. And what this is doing is a covenant is literally something struck in blood or cut in blood. Okay? And the idea here is, is it is a, a unbelievably significant vow that the one who makes it is literally taking a blood oath. And so the, the animals cut in two are, are symbolic of what is happening with this covenant that is being cut. So uh, Abraham does this, chases away the vultures. Now as the sun was setting, he fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your father, uh, your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet re reached its full measure. Um, total aside, but we have to, uh, you know, we got to get more mature with our understanding of God and, and our faith if we really want to have the kind of Christian life I think we all desire and we all hope to have, right? Um, Abraham asks God to shoot straight with him, right? He says, look, you're making me this promise. Now, now just shoot straight with me. Like, how will I know this? And the first thing God says is what? Yeah, actually, you're your descendants aren't really going to go into the land. They're actually going to take 400 years and go be slaves in another land. And then, you know, a couple things. But then, know this, I'm going to bring them back. And, and I just think it's fascinating. It's an easy thing to miss here. But if you really want to know God's will for your life, I honestly believe, and you want God to shoot straight with you, I honestly believe God's going to tell you some worst-case scenarios or some things you don't want to hear first words out of his mouth. Does that make sense? I think we go to God naively thinking, you, you've got all these promises, and so, so give, me, give me like a foretaste of it. Give me like something, you know, to, to go on, an appetizer. Like, whet my appetite. And, and then what you get is um, the, the bad news first because God's like look you know I know what's going to happen when you guys go into slavery it's not an accident like my plan is okay with you guys being slaves for 400 years I'm not falling asleep for 400 years my plan is okay with this happening and I know it ahead of time and I know it during that time and when I get to that point I know it when I lead them out of that. It's all part of my plan. And I'm giving you more of a picture now than you probably wanted, Abraham. But know this. I am God. I'm going to be God when they're slaves. And I'm going to be God when they come back into the land. And in all of that, I'm sovereign. And my promise will hold true. Meaning, when they're slaves, it's not like somebody can say, God has reneged on his covenant. God has failed his covenant. This blood oath that was going on with God and, and Abraham, somehow God stumbled in that. God is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you right now, if you want to know the whole thing about what's going on with this covenant, this is going to happen. 
It's a part of the story. And then this is going to happen. And it's the fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of the story. And I just think we need to, when we see things like that in Scripture, understand the same is true for us. If God's going to make a promise in your life or if God's going to lead you somewhere, um, when you hit the bad season or the five years of wandering in the desert or the, the eight years of pain or the three years of going through bankruptcy, there's a very good chance that it's not that God has fallen asleep or that he has somehow um, failed in his calling with you or his covenant with you, but that he all along knew that was a part of the path he was going to lead you on. It, I'm Daniel. I'm dealing with one of these scenarios now where I'm looking at God and saying, um, you've made it very clear I've followed you every step on this journey, this particular journey, so how come it's a total nightmare right now? Like, how come it's a disaster? And God's like, "Um, yeah, I I don't actually think it's a disaster. I mean, I, I understand that's how it feels to you. It feels like, there's slavery going on and, and that somehow something went wrong. Yeah, but that's not how it, it appears to me, Ken. You see, I, I have a whole path that I'm looking at and I did lead you here and this is part of the path and so you just need to trust and believe and kind of move forward. But anyways, the way God deals with Abraham here is unbelievable to me that you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis and see these things that that show up and you begin to realize there's a relational element to the way God deals with his people always from the very beginning all the way forward. And that when we have these questions, we yearn for that relationship with God. When we go to scripture, we begin to see God will talk to us if our minds are going to be yielded enough to allow for him to have that full conversation that I think he would need to have, that, that a parent longs to have with a child that sometimes can't happen until the child reaches a certain level of maturity. Does that make sense? Anybody? One of you. Okay. Um, all right, Genesis 15. We'll, we'll continue on. So God says this, and then this is the covenant he cuts. Um, verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And he said to him, Your descendants, to your descendants, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, um, Kryptonites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Um, the, uh, the pot, the, the smoking fire pot with the blazing torch, basically uh, is symbolic of God passing, because what was supposed to happen in the ancient Near East was the person cutting the covenant was supposed to walk between the pieces of, of the animal halves, basically saying, I'm cutting this covenant in blood. And so you get the fire pot and the blazing torch, which symbolizes the presence of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. And God passes between those two halves and then says, I am making this covenant with you today. You will possess this land from this border to that border to this border, all the lands of these people. And so when we go back to Joshua, where we were two weeks ago, remember how... um, Joshua made a careless treaty 
with a group of people that he thought was from far away, but they were actually in the land. And God, you know, it was, it was a big deal. Like, they weren't supposed to do that. Because it's God's covenant. See what I'm saying? Like, God took a blood oath to Abram, um, Abram that this was going to happen. And Joshua was charged with going in and fulfilling that. And by making that careless vow, it's as if the covenant had to be altered because of um, what, you see, it's a big deal. And so in our Christian life, the things we do, there's nothing, there's nothing um, casual about life. All of life is spiritual. All of life deals with what has come before, what's going to come after. We're knit into this fabric, and, and it's, it's significant. There's no trivial stuff. And so you even see here why so much later when Joshua is fulfilling his charge, he should have been more... Um, vigilant and recognized the, the importance and the gravitas of what he was doing. He was actually being used by God to fulfill the covenant that God made with Abram on a blood oath. I mean, he get that? It's a big deal. And so what do we notice here? What, what doesn't happen on this path between the two halves of the animals? Abram doesn't walk between them. This is God's covenant, meaning it's an unconditional covenant. It's not conditioned on on anything that we do like some of the other covenants that God cuts. This one is, is simply when I make a promise and you believe that promise, when, when you have faith, and I'm going to credit it to you as your righteousness, then it's now on me. And the covenant we have with Jesus Christ, the reason that whole works conversation is such a big deal, because if it was dependent on us somehow doing some works, it would be as if we're saying God fulfilling his side of the equation with salvation, with Jesus Christ, that, that covenant in Jesus' blood that somehow that was made efficient or made effectual. It actually happened because we added our component. It's like in chemistry. You have two things. Alone, they're inert. You put them together and they combust. And if we think that part of what we do is going to make it come about, then it really depends on us. And so you have this whole idea of, Romans taking again from this that he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And when we believe in Christ, this gospel, this promise of grace that we don't deserve, that this this kind of covenant, this promise from God, when we believe it, it's credited to us as righteousness. Our salvation comes in that and it depends on what? The grace of God. We don't walk through the halves. We don't join in that blood oath. It's God's promise to us. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, So that's the second of these two things. So the first one is go, then believe, and then surrender. So in in Genesis um, chapter, I think, 22, we see God... Um, specifically, quote-unquote, test this faith of Abraham. And he says, 
I made the promise based on this error, Isaac. Okay? This promise is that, that through Isaac, this is going to come. So if you want to test Abraham's faith, what do you hit him with? Give me Isaac. Give me Isaac. Um, we all have something that we think is the source of our life, that we think is in some sense the one thing God has promised us or the one thing we have a right to have or to claim from a spiritual sense. Um, and if God wants to test us, the reality is it's going to be there. The rich young ruler, when Jesus says, go give all you have to the poor, he's testing him. He's saying, you, you think you have all that you need for life and for happiness and for fullness, yet one thing you lack, be willing to surrender that. Open up your hands, keep nothing back from God, and then see if he won't deliver on all his promises to you, whatever they might have been for the rich young ruler. We're, we're never told in Scripture what what unique things God had spoken to him in a dream or as he prayed growing up through his teenage years or whatever. Like, we don't know if he had really relinquished those riches. Would we have had a gospel in his name? Would he have rivaled Paul for, for bringing um, Christianity to the, the masses? Would he have, like, I don't know what God would have or could have done with this person if he had been willing to open up his hands and surrender. But it might be a spouse that you prayed for your whole life or a child you prayed for your whole life or something that would be similar. But there's this idea, what, whatever it is that is symbolic of the, the fullness or the completeness of life and God's faithfulness to you, if God wants to test your faith or chooses to test your faith, it's going to be in that symbolic area. And that's what he does with Abraham is, I'm going to test your faith. Um, so here's what I want you to do. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. And early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Notice this. Um, we will worship and then we will come back to you. The book of Hebrews picks up on a lot of the language in here. It says that somehow throughout all of this, Abraham was banking on the ability of God. Uh, actually, we'll turn to it in just a minute. Abraham took the word, uh, wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Which has always been one of those fascinating things to me. Um, no, nobody knows what Abraham's doing. You know, he got up while his wife was still sleeping because 
Uh, he wanted to avoid the question, <laughs> so what are you doing with our son? You know what I mean? Like, he, he wanted to avoid that. Um, <laughs> uh, his son doesn't know, um, because that would be a hard one, right? Um, hey, son, uh, you know, you know, <laughs> you know the question, you know, are we there yet? Try answering that question when you just told your kid that you're going to kill him at the end. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, his son doesn't know what's going on. And so it's a fascinating thing. Abraham really hasn't told anybody. Um, and so Isaac asked, where's the, the lamb? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Um, again, showing where he's putting his faith. He's not white-knuckling it and saying, I'll figure something out before, before, before it really gets bad. I'll solve this. Just trust me. Like, you know, leave me alone. I'm, I'm trying to think this through right now. Like, his answer very calmly was, God will provide. And when they reached the place, uh, the place where God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of a son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide one of the names of God. Um, is this, the Lord will provide. It's in all caps, probably in most of your Bibles. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Um, we're hitting on a lot of themes today that I think are, are deep spiritual realities. And, and I don't, we don't have time to really chase them all down. But one of the things we need to recognize about faith is that our faith gets tested the most severely the moment before God delivers. Um, it's one of the things that we get from Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that, that the worst test of faith, the greatest excruciating pain that we deal with is usually right before the deliverance of God. And notice that we get a name of God here um, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So a lot of you and myself that are asking, God, when are you going to provide? How are you going to provide this particular situation I'm dealing with? God, what, when are you going to solve that? When are you going to give me the resolution? Like, when are you going to show me um, how to make it work? Like, when, when are you going to provide? Um, the answer is, on the mountain of the Lord, meaning right at the last minute, right at, at the greatest test to my faith, right where I feel like it's all going to come unraveled, right where I feel like it's all going to die, it's right there and right then that God usually answers and provides. It's not in uh, the valley or, or, or the, where the river streams are. I mean like the good valley, not the valley of the shadow of death. I'm talking about like... You know, the, the rolling hills valley. You know what I'm talking about? It's not, it's not sitting by the fruit tree 
um, that the Lord will provide. It's on the mountain of the Lord. Where you have to, to, to work to get to, where you have to endure to go to, where you usually symbolically are, are struggling and wrestling with God. And it's on the mountain of the Lord that He will provide. Um, so then we see this, uh, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said this, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as much as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Verse 18, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. How many of us here are, are Jewish by birth, ethnically Jewish? Claim, claim some kind of lineage with, with the Israeli uh, Jewish kind of uh, national identity going back, ancestry, So how are we in? You, I understand. No, I'm just kidding. The rest, I don't, I don't understand you guys. No. Um, how are we in the promise of God? Because in this moment, God makes the promise that it will be not just for the descendants, but all nations. Jesus uses this, and the, and the disciples begin to understand this more fully when they take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, um, that all nations would be able to hear, uh, rejoice, respond, and be glad in this offer of salvation that's not just for one um, particular nationality or subgroup. And it begins here, Why? Because of what Abraham has done, this promise now extends to, to the nations. And listen to this, because you have obeyed me and have not kept back the Son. Do you guys know this is the first time the word obey shows up in Scripture? Isn't that fascinating? I nerd out on a lot of things. Um, history. Uh, oh, history. Um, I'm drawing, I don't know. I, there's other things I like. Uh, I just don't know what they are right now. <laughs> I like movies. And wow. Um, what's that? That's not for in here. That's, 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 not, that's, not, that's not for now. Thank you, though. Um, <laughs> uh, but I nerd out on this verse, too. Uh, and the idea that this is the first time the word obey shows up in Scripture. I just find that incredibly interesting and intriguing. What Abraham did here in not withholding his son and walking all this way and going up to the mountain and going through this exercise that in a lot of ways was an exercise in futility because it's a test. And he goes through all of this and God looks at it and says, that's obedience, he didn't go give a bunch of money to the poor. Um, he didn't go and um, take a bullet for somebody. 
he, he didn't do this noble thing of getting to the altar and then challenging God and saying, I'll show you how good of a dad I am, God, and, and push Isaac away and throw himself up on the altar. Like he didn't do anything that we would normally look at as heroic or obedient. His faith was the obedience. Following, hearing, accepting, following, and holding on to the promise through this process was the obedience. And we begin to learn through that that obedience is something a lot different than what we think it is. Obedience is not so much tied to the action as it is the faith that prompts the action. It's the trust in God and the willingness to go with God or to follow God or to believe God that is the obedience. Let me unpack that um, a bit more. Here's the thing about it. Um, this passage was hugely instrumental in my life when I was 26. And it became instrumental because I read a book by Soren Kierkegaard called Fear and Trembling. And you can't quote... I thought about bringing it in. I looked at about 20 different things that underlined in it. And it's really funny. You can't quote Kierkegaard because not only is the whole book ridiculously obtuse, but you can't find 10 words put together that aren't obtuse. You know what I mean? Like it's like nothing, not even 10 words read well. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievably dense book, but it's on this whole story of Abraham and Isaac and the idea of faith, and it's called Fear and Trembling. And so it's ridiculously dense and, and you're reading it, but the ideas are, are so powerful. And what he's doing is trying to unpack what faith really is. And he, he opened up for me at age 26 something that I hadn't really realized, and that's that we think that faith is, um, we think that the essence of faith is something that's only a part of the movement of faith. And what he said is, we think faith is the resignation, not the belief that comes out of the resignation. Let me explain that a bit further. We think faith is resigning ourselves to do something that God has called us to do, to sacrifice something. And so what happens is, we say, well, God said do it, so I'm going to do it, because that's the kind of person I am. I'm the kind of person that does what God says. So I'm going to do it. Now I just checked out and now where have I grounded, um, where have I grounded my actions? In myself and my own pride and my own spiritual purity, right? Um, how else could I do this? Uh, God said, sacrifice my son. I'm going to sacrifice my son. But dadgummit, God always does this stuff to me. Why do I have to be the only one that God requires these huge things of I'll do it I will because you know I, you know that's the kind of guy I am well and, and, which is probably why God takes advantage of me so much because he's always asking me to do this kind of stuff but whatever I'll do it you know but um you know it'd be nice if people realized like how much I sacrifice because you know I do this all the time right what am I grounding my action in now a martyr complex right i'm resigning myself to what god has called me to do but i'm not grounding it in my trust in god and walking by faith going i have no freaking idea 
how this is going to work out, how it's going to play out, how anything good can come from this, because you're asking me to kill the very thing that is the good thing. I'm absolutely at a loss. I want to panic inside. But I'm holding on. I mean, I'm just barely holding on to this idea of faith, God. I believe in your promise. I believe in your call. I believe in your power. I believe in your ability. So I will walk one step at a time. I have no reason for what I'm doing. I can't explain it to anybody. My wife asks me, what are you going to do? And I say, go kill my son. She's going to think I'm crazy because there's no ethic for that. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's beyond what I could explain to somebody and go, oh, wow, Abraham's a spiritual guy. No, they're going to lock me up and, and, and keep me from my son and think I'm going to harm my son. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's nothing that grounds it. Like, I, I can't even tell anyone what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. The only reason I'm doing this is because of faith. I'm not grounding it in a martyr complex. I'm not grounding it in... Um, this idea of my own spiritual pride. What's another way we could ground it? Um, uh, I'm very intuitive. I'll tell you how I, I get out of these things from a mercenary perspective a lot, right? Um, God says do something, and you, you, you sit there and you think about it enough, and you think about it enough, and then you go, ah, God's a pretty smart guy. I think I see how all of this is really a reverse psychology move that's going to ultimately make me look really good. Or, I bet that'll actually make Antioch grow. Or, wow, I actually see how I could get what I want without even looking like I'm going to get what I want because God's so smart. Like, you know, and so then it's like, all right, I'll do this. What am I grounding it in now? I'm grounding it in my own capacity to imagine um, or to jump ahead and to see what I might get out of it that would be good for me that now is going to become a, a motivating factor different than the direct promise of God saying I'm going to provide for you. So it's almost like it can become a form of a mercenary uh, use of faith in God. Does that make sense? but I'm grounding it somewhere else. Faith, according to Kierkegaard, is, is accepting the resignation that, yes, I have to lay down something. Yes, I have to, to lay down my wishes, my life, my son, whatever it might be, that I, I have to resign myself to the fact that faith, true faith, requires a degree of holding things with open hands that God can require anything of me, everything of me. And, and yes, I have to resign myself to that. But I can't stop just there because I could, I could do resignation purely on, on spiritual discipline alone. Ascetics can get this one. Buddhists, um, Buddhism is a whole religion built, uh, built on this. Um, Buddhism basically says the problem with suffering in the world is that it, it comes out of our desires. So basically frustrated desire causes pain. And if we can get at desire and learn to um, back out of the, the, the idea that we want or need or desire anything, we can find ourselves on the way, the eightfold path 
uh, to enlightenment where we'll, we'll reach a kind of spiritual uh, happiness or, or peace because we don't need anything, don't want anything, don't desire anything. There's nothing to frustrate, right? I mean, Buddhism in some sense uh, is a religion built on resignation, okay? And what, what Kierkegaard is saying is, look, that's a part of the path, but the idea of faith here is that it requires resignation, but then it leaps forward and says, but, but God, I know you've promised to me. God, I know you've declared to me. You've, you've talked about the rewards. You've talked about what it is you desire to give me. You've talked about the delight of my heart. You don't want me to kill my desires. You don't want me to stop thinking about the promises. You actually want me to hold on to those in the middle of thinking they're impossible so that I live with this ridiculous tension. In the middle of losing the thing, that, that, that would be the promise. I'm still hoping for the thing that would be the promise and all I have to keep me from being ripped in two is this idea of faith in you. It's the heart of paradox. Kierkegaard uses that word paradox all throughout fear and trembling. And he says, look, resignation, easy. You just kill desire and you can do whatever. But to do that and to still hope, to still believe, to still have faith in God. That's the tension. That's the difficult part. That's the essence of faith. And so this is awkward now because how do we live into that tension? Um, it's uncomfortable too. And it's uncomfortable because you know when you get to prayer meetings and someone says, I'm having a real big challenge. Would you pray for me? Deep in our gut, we kind of go, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I'd feel a lot more comfortable just praying that, that God would guard your heart and your mind and give you peace. You know what I'm talking about? Like people ask me to really get on my knees and to sweat bullets to pray for the deliverance of their sick child or to pray for... Um, what's going on in the 11th hour with their business or to pray for uh, a persecuted church and something that just doesn't seem like it's going to turn around or you know what I'm talking about? If someone really asked me to get on my knees and to pray bullets, I always have that little tinge of it, it, I would feel more comfortable if I could just pray warm fuzzy thoughts for you. I, I'd it'd be a little bit less awkward if I could just pray something that I knew was safe. Because if I really pray that, that deliverance, that salvation, that rescue, that God will provide, I, I'm setting up that tension that's hard for me to hold on to. That, that somehow I'm supposed to believe for the impossible, but, but having zero control over it. I can't ground that anywhere, but yet I just leave it there. And then even if what I think I was praying for doesn't get answered, I can't just go, um, aw shucks, I don't think prayer works anymore. I'm not going to do that. Faith means that I still believe that God is sovereign and that even if I'm learning that this is the 400 years in, in captivity, that I still hold out that he will deliver, he will make good on, he will take care of, and ultimately he will reward those that are called according to his name. 
But it's so much easier for us just to get rid of the reward part and the desire part and to do the old kind of conservative Christian thing, just do your duty and, and leave it at that. But that doesn't jive with Scripture, you see. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well, Matthew seven eleven. And he says, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our kids, um, how much more does our Father God, who is good, know how to good, give good gifts to, to his children? And delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And Jesus looks at a bunch of people that are saying, man, we've given up a whole lot for you, uh, Jesus. Like, we've sacrificed a whole lot. Where does all that go? Where does it lead? Where does it resolve? Like, what am I looking toward here? Where are my eyes supposed to go? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, nobody who's given up houses or families or, or any of this stuff for my sake won't get that back tenfold. And he focuses them. He trains their eyes on this idea that, that he's making a promise to them of delivering and providing and rewarding and giving and blessing this, this whole Christian thing and God is, is not one of duty. It's one of ultimately obeying by holding on awkwardly in faith that whatever we go through circumstantially, if we're trusting God and, and we're following God, he will deliver us to where he wants us to be and where he wants us to be is good. And so as easy as it would be for me to kill desire and then just do my duty, and at least live with a grounded kind of faith. You know what I mean? Or, or a grounded kind of um, framework for life. Just playing it safe, being a good person, feeling good about myself. I'm just grounded there. I'm supposed to live with this awkward, this awkward reality of the promise, the blessings of God that I'm supposed to, to look to in faith and let that drive me on. And so... All of that, where does that leave us? Because there's something really interesting that I think um, when we get to the end of the shoot, we're, we're left with this question. Um, how do we apply that? That's always the, the question for, for anyone listening to anything. How do we apply that? I think in churches that are, that are not well thought through, we talk about faith and the application is a universal one. Meaning, we all need to go sell all our possessions and give it to the poor. And we take the, the test of the rich young ruler and we, we, we make it everybody's test. Or we say, um, you know, look, you need to live by faith and God will deliver. So you just you trust him. You, you go live by faith and God will deliver and, and we leave it at that and then, and then 20 people go out and buy a, a brand new car on credit and then sit around waiting for God to pay for it. And I've, I, look, I've seen this. I've seen pastors quit their jobs and move to England and, and live off 10 grand a month on credit cards, calling it living on faith, even though all the counselors in their life are telling them, what the heck are you doing? Because they're just overly, overly rosy about just doing whatever wild and crazy idea and then, and, then, and then throwing it at God with the faith thing. You know what I'm saying? Um, so what is the application? 
You know, I can't just say, go trust God and he'll, he'll answer whatever your prayers are because that's not what's going on here with the rich young ruler or Abraham. God specifically called Abraham to a specific thing. And Abraham trusted him in that specific thing. And God delivered in that specific thing. Right? So here's where Kierkegaard was um, the father of what's called Christian existentialism. Kierkegaard re uh, recognized the radical individuality of Christianity. Now that's very different than individualism. Okay? But what Kierkegaard realized is certainly there's times when we come before the throne of God as a community. And there's certainly times when we come before the throne of God maybe as a family or as, as you and your spouse together. But there are times when we come before the throne of God naked and alone. And the message we hear there is for us alone. And it's that message that we have to follow. It's that message that has embedded within it the promise that we get to claim. And so there are three types of people sitting here today. Um, there are people here that if you really, really were willing to listen to what God would say to you this morning, um, God would give you a call. If you really would say, God, I'm not going to hold anything back, I, I know God would speak to you in that. There's another category. You've got a letter from God where God um, did speak to you, and you've been carrying it around for two years, eight years, 10 years, 30 years. And it's an unopened letter, but it's just like um, birthday cards, you know? You don't have to open it to know what's in it. And you've been carrying that thing around for all these years and you've learned to live with it and ignore it. You're afraid to open it because you don't want, you're afraid of what it might say, you're afraid of what that might require of you and you're scared. And you've learned to cope with that by putting it further and further behind you so you don't have to see it all the time and to do more and more spiritual things so that at the end of the day you can go, look at all this good stuff, isn't that enough? Do I really have to open the letter? Do I really have to listen to what it is you are, are asking of me, God, specifically that I'm scared to read? And then there's a third category. Um, and that's people here where there's not a single thing God is gonna say to you at all until you deal with the sin in your life. The sin that you've carved out space for and you're leading a double life and and you're allowing yourself to feel safe enough because other people think you're spiritual, but there is nothing God will do with you until you resolve that character issue. Um, God will not take a boat out with a hole beneath the waterline. God requires character in those he's gonna use to do his, his purposes, not perfection. Nobody's perfect. We're all sinners, but people who are living with and cozied up to behavioral patterns of sin, ongoing sin, until you deal with that, until you're willing to deal with that, you're not going to get that word from the Lord that you can follow in faith and begin to look forward to receiving the provision of the promise that he makes to us. I honestly believe everyone in this room is in one of those three categories. Um, 
And so I, I ask you just to picture it. Have, have you heard from God? And if not, are you willing to hear from God? Um, do you know, have you had a nagging sense your whole life that God wants to use you for something? That God's always kind of been dinging at you and that you've just kind of pushed it to the side? Um, faith for you, obedience for you, would be willing to sit down today and say, you know what, God, I'll look at that letter. I'll open it up. I'm not scared of you. It's not like God is calling us the way a mom calls a kid when a kid's playing in his friend's bedroom with all the new toys that he's never even seen before. And, and when you're like, you know, in fifth grade and mom starts calling from down the house or whatever and you just ignore mom, you know, like boys especially, we get good at that. I'm just gonna, I, I mean, what, unless mom drags me out of here, like I'm just gonna ignore mom, you know, because these are cool toys. And then mom wants me to leave the cool toy place and I don't wanna go, you know, so I'm just gonna ignore mom. We, if we think that God's call is somehow ultimately sour or ultimately bad, we're, we're kind of, we're showing our immaturity in that, that we don't understand that God is calling us to himself, calling us to the fulfillment of faith, calling us to the promises that he had, what he created us for, the calling that he could have for us. And when we, when we don't understand from that and we run from that, then then we're really living and we're accepting a, a position of spiritual immaturity that you don't want. You know, the, the, one of the greatest things I learned about prayer was from a guy by the name of Dallas Willard, who, um, the late Dallas Willard. And he, told, he wrote something in a book. And the minute I read it, I was just like, oh my gosh, that's true. And what he wrote was this, the Holy Spirit doesn't argue with you. And what, he, what he meant was, God will say something to you when you're praying and you'll get that twinge of like, oh, um, that's a bit uncomfortable. I think God's trying to say something to me. I don't know if I'm ready for that. And then you'll argue back. Well, uh, what if I, if I really take the high road on this? Or what if I really begin to open this up to, you know, change? Look at what might happen. And then nothing. Well, my argument must have been pretty good. So I guess I'll go with it, you know. I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't argue back with us. Because when we argue with the Holy Spirit, we're saying ultimately, angel of the Lord, ultimately God, you need to be on my side and you need to fight for my agenda and you have to, to, to um, answer the riddles I'm gonna pose to you so that you can prove to me that your ideas are gonna work out better than my ideas. And the Holy Spirit whispers. And when we argue back, the Holy Spirit just stands there and says, I'm ready to talk when, when you're ready to listen. And a year from that, the Holy Spirit will still be there. You'll still have that conscience. You'll still kind of be aware of it. And God is more patient than we are. And God will, I, I think if you really leaned into that emotion, that knowledge, that gut feeling, you'd realize God's ready to talk uh, when you're ready to listen and not to argue back. And, and that changed my prayer life because I began to realize that in almost every single instance of true prayer, like on my knees in the evening wrestling for a long period of time, I would rationalize with God constantly. And I began to learn to hear that voice in me 
And I began to learn to shut that voice down and to just sit and to just listen and to wait. And here's the final thing we learn about faith. Um, I think there's a naive understanding that walking by sight is rational. And walking by faith, therefore, as the opposite, is irrational. Do you understand what I mean by that? Walking by faith is, a, is, is anything but irrational or unintelligent. It's, it's the same as walking by sight. With sight, I'm using my eyeballs and my brain and what I'm seeing and what I know of things to discern and to make decisions rationally with intelligence. Walking by faith is saying, I'm going to walk intelligently, but the data that I'm getting, instead of coming from sight, it's a lot like somebody who's blind. I've never known a blind person that walks unintelligently. They walk twice as intelligently. You know what I'm talking about? They use their ears and a stick and guides. They're that much more cautious and intelligent about how they walk and purposeful about how they walk than people that can see. Just because someone loses their eyes doesn't make them stupid and just walk into the middle of a road, right? You see what I'm saying? So blind people walk more intelligently often than people who walk by sight. And just like a blind person who has someone that they hold on to with a shoulder or an arm, those are the counselors, the wise counselors in our lives, the spiritual mentors, the people that can distill wisdom and biblical insight and discern for us what maybe God is doing in the course of our life or in the trajectory of our life and to help bring that insight in from what they know about us, from what they know about themselves and what they know about God. Those are the counselors in our life. And then we have the stick over here which is heavy, heavy duty prayer that says, God, I have to, I have to make each step count because I don't know where I'm going. I mean, I, I used to know what I was doing because I mean, I would just see it and I would make my decisions. But I don't know where the heck this is leading me, this path you have me on. I don't know five steps or 10 steps or 15 steps. You got to tell me day in and day out or with each new stress what I'm supposed to be doing because I don't know. And so prayer doesn't become about arguing with God. It becomes about pleading with God, saying, God, show me your provision now in this moment and then ultimately where you're going Lead me, guide me, give me insight, show me the coincidences I need, open the doors, or if I'm supposed to just wait, give me the strength and the fortitude not to try and ground this whole thing in something else, but to let it hang there in the awkward paradox of faith. So faith is, is not walking by sight, but that doesn't mean it's walking dumb. It means that we pour twice as much energy into our spiritual life and the spiritual disciplines because we're desperate for those to be able to lead and to guide us forward as we're trying to walk by faith and follow God. Does that make sense? Like there's something, we, we, we always talk about the cheap things that are just the, the actions. We should be the best church about giving to the poor. We should be. We should be the best church about loving each other and being in small groups. We should be the best church about having relationships with, with mentors and whatever. Like, you know, we should, be, we should be all these things. But what I'm saying to you is you 
radically you, naked before God, need to be someone who is so desperate for God to speak to you as you seek to follow, that you are so radically living by faith that God could look at your faith alone, not just the actions, and say that faith is obedience. And that's righteousness. And that ultimately is something I'm going to honor. And so instead of just talking about actions we're supposed to do as Christians or a church, we need to get beneath that and realize somehow the righteous will live by faith. There's something unbelievably tense and weird and strange and life-altering about that. So this morning, um, all I've been aching the last two days is that you, I don't care about the person to the left of you or the right of you, you would be willing to hear from God whatever he might say. And if you've been hanging on to a letter all these years and you think maybe it's too late, you know the story of Samson taught me that you're never too messy and it's never too late for God to use you to fulfill the calling he had for you. It is never too late and you are never too messy for God to use you to fulfill the calling he had for you if you would surrender yourself to him. So I don't care how long you've been neglecting that letter today. Listen to what God has been saying to you, wanting to say to you for years even. And if you're dealing with sin, guess what? Um, I'm on a, a, I want you to be on a journey with me as I seek to follow God. And if you're not willing to deal with that sin, you can't be on that journey with me. And it's going to affect our fellowship. And I don't want that. I want you to know the joy of feeling the wind in your face as you follow hard after God and make progress as you grow in faith. And so don't be a kid and hang on to stupid sins that make you live a hypocritical, duplicitous life. Deal with it today. Um, care enough about your own happiness to deal with it. So I pray wherever you find yourself this morning, um, radically naked before the cross, you would deal with those things. Uh, I think we've got special music coming on out. And um, let me just pray for us. Father, uh, this isn't a cheap prayer. Uh, you know where my heart's been the last few days on this. And even if it's just um, two people this morning that you're trying to speak to in a way that would change the course of history, then so be it with those two people. God, do your work. Have an incredible meeting off in the back of the room at a coffee table, just one-on-one -on -one with whoever those people are. I mean, just, I, I, I can picture the tenderness of how you want to speak to people that you're gonna call and to work with. Your sons and your daughters who you, you believe and you know and who you've gifted, who you love, who you've called, who you desire to name and, and in some sense baptize with a new identity. Father, if it's just even a couple, I just pray those people would make the time and the space to have that conversation with you. God, you're the one that takes the, the big covenants. You're the one that cuts the big oaths. 
May we give you the glory for the grace that we don't deserve, that we are assured of in your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.